I'm Tamvin Nasir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that provides insights and tools to help leaders take on the challenges and opportunities found in leading today's workplaces. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tamvin Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that offers keynotes and corporate trainings in both virtual and in-person settings that will help you to improve the way you lead and guide your organization's growth and future successes. To find out how we can help you today with your leadership challenges and discover your untapped opportunities, visit our website at tavinasir.com. And now I'd like to introduce my guest for this episode, Laura Kriska. Laura is a leading cross-cultural consultant with more than 30 years of experience bridging gaps in diverse workplaces. She has worked with Fortune 500 companies on four continents, helping thousands of professionals overcome us versus them tendencies that foster divisions and feelings of exclusion because of a person's nationality, ethnicity, race, religion, or other demographic identifiers. I'm going to be speaking with Laura about her latest book, The Business of We, the proven three-step process for closing the gap between us and them in your workplace, and how it can help leaders address the critical issue of diversity and inclusion in their workplace. Konnichiwa, Laura. Leadership Biz Cafe, Iyoko So. <laughs> I love it, Laura. You know what? That's the first time I've ever welcomed a guest to my podcast in Japanese. And if you're wondering why, it's because while Laura was raised in the U.S., she was born in Japan. And I thought it would be a nice way to reflect some of what we'll be talking about here today. So again, welcome, Laura, to Leadership Biz Cafe. I have no idea what you replied to me because I don't know Japanese, but I hope I said my greeting correctly. Well, I'm going to tell you something, Tanvir. You did not pronounce it correctly, but it was a perfect welcome. It is exactly the kind of we building action that I encourage people to do. So well done. Now, Laura, as we'll be talking about the topic of diversity in today's workplaces, I thought it might be helpful to start off by looking at why leaders should be paying attention to this, especially within the context of reducing the gap between us and them or who's in your in-group, those who you share a feeling of belonging with, and the out-group, those who you look upon as being others or different from you in some way. And while I'm sure some of our listeners might be familiar with some of the many research findings that have clearly demonstrated a strong business case for diversity in both the workforce and in leadership levels, I was wondering if you could start our discussion off here by sharing some of the benefits that come with widening our definition of who our in-group is. Mm -hmm. Well, let me just say that what I do is help people build trust across us versus them gaps in the workplace. And I do that for many reasons. Um, I do that because it's the right thing to do. It's good for business. Um, and it makes people more engaged in their work. So when you're talking about the question, you know, why, why do this? Why is this work important? Um, there it used to be a kind of back burner topic, right? You had uh, somebody kind of looking at these issues as a side issue uh, in the business, but because of the social changes that have happened in the past few years, um, we know that 
this issue is no longer a luxury for organizations. It is mission critical. Having employees who feel like they belong, and belonging is a kind of new word in this, um, in the diversity and inclusion, uh, you know, world, where it's not just having representation of different people, it's really including people, you know, at the decision making table, who represent different backgrounds. I talk a lot about different cultures. And there's a misunderstanding, I think I'd like I usually try to clear up initially, which is when you talk about different cultures, people normally think of different countries, right? China versus the United States versus Brazil. And those are good examples of different culture gaps. But culture gaps are uh, defined by any aspect of a person's identity. So their gender, their gender orientation, um, where they live in the world, uh, their age, you know, the generation they're from. So I usually give an example of generational gaps. Uh, I, I live in a house, for example, with three teenagers and my teenagers speak a different language than I do. One day, one of my kids said, oh, mom, I've got a dip. And I'm looking around thinking, dip? We don't have any dip. What are you talking about, <laughs> dip? <laughs> and, you know, dip means I got to go. But that, you know, that's not a word that my generation uses. And so just like speaking Japanese, as we were doing in the start of this episode, is another language. Different generations have different languages and different cultural norms, different social touch points. So when you're thinking about your organization, um, making sure that people from different cultures, again, using that really broadly, uh, are represented, are um, uh, in different uh, play, kind of placement in the organization in terms of leadership, you know, at the decision-making table. This makes a huge difference in, in the way people actually show up to work. Absolutely. And you know what I find interesting about the subject, Laura, is how with a growing talent shortage, it only makes sense for leaders and organizations to diversify the different culture groups, as you mentioned, that you use to grow and build your workforce. But of course, this then begs the question that if there is a tangible benefit to we building where we embrace diversity and encourage a greater participation, as you said, from a diverse group of people, why are so few organizations doing a good job with this? What's causing so many organizations to resist truly embracing diversity and narrowing the gap between us and them? Okay, I know why. <laughs> I'm hoping you do. <laughs> why? The reason is, so there's a home team, right? Mm. There's a home team in every organization. If we think about the home team in the United, in you know, the United States or North America, uh, corporate America, it's mostly um, the identifiers are white middle-aged men. You can throw in kind of straight and you know Christian in there as well. And I'm not against any of those features or factors of a person. Th that's just a, you know that's how people identify who are um, who self-identify who are in leading positions. Um, it's different in Japan, for example. I worked in in Japan, and the home team was primarily uh, Japanese middle-aged men. Um, so every organization has a home team and the home team means that you have an advantage. You are surrounded by people who are similar to you, might have similar backgrounds, similar values. And 
when you're trying to expand that notion of who belongs, people on the home team, and, and let me say, I self-identify as middle-aged, white, and female. So I'm, I'm in very, very close proximity to the home team in corporate America. Uh, and this is part of why I know this is true, is that people on the home team, even if they have the mindset of, yes, I want to expand this circle, yes, we want to diversify, the reason they don't is that they're terrified of doing or saying the wrong thing. They don't want to offend anybody, and it is so much safer and more comfortable to do nothing or do the minimum or do what legal department tells you or HR tells you and check off a list and stay in this very narrow lane. And that's why after more than 50 years since civil rights legislation was passed in the United States, there has been negligible change, negligible change, because there's been no penalty for people on the home team when they fail to take meaningful action. And that's where we are today. And, and the reason we building can be a, a solution is that we building provides a practical, mostly comfortable path to get from that uncomfortable, I don't know what to do or say, to action. Because without action, there will be no transformation. I really appreciate this point that you're making because we see it sometimes being shown in some circles where people are treating this like we're in a zero sum game that for one cultural group to gain something, to kind of get on equal footing, I have to give up something. And it's only natural that any of us would be reluctant to do that. And what's really at play here is just to understand that really what's needed is for us to be more intentional about the actions that we're taking and that we recognize that if we make an honest effort to become more aware and better understand one another, that effort will be welcomed, even like as I did at the starter of our talk today, speaking to you in Japanese, we don't get it right 100% of the time. I 100% agree with you, Tanvir. Uh, it, you're in, just as you said, your intention, uh, being intentional. I argue that for any person who wants to bridge a gap, right? An us versus them gap, whether that has to do with the business mandate, right? Sales versus marketing, or a racial difference, white versus black, or, you know, nationality, Japan versus America. If a person has two things, if they have two things, anyone can bridge the gap. And the two things are free and available to everyone. And those two things, do you want to hear what those two things are? Absolutely. The two things are first, a genuine wish to connect, right? You genuinely wished to connect with me today as your guest. And you looked up how to say good, you know, hello and welcome to my show. That's those were the words you said to me in Japanese. So you were genuine. And then the second one is having the ability to uh, be humble and, you know, have some humility and recognize I might not get this right and not worry about that, not let that stop you. So when you just as you did, you said those words, it wasn't perfect. Guess what? Your Japanese is not pronounced perfectly, Tanvir. I'm sorry to tell you this, but it's the truth. It's, <laughs> you know, but we're not, I love what you said earlier. We're not always going to get it right. But until we uh, try to make some effort to connect, 
um, I mean, we have to make some effort to connect. And it is when people on the home team, I'm going to call it out, when, when middle-aged white people like myself don't take action, we are prioritizing our own comfort over the importance of broadening the circle of who belongs. And that is no longer acceptable. 100% agree with you. So, Laura, I'd like to delve deeper now into how we can start we building in our organization. And in your book, you point out that there are three steps to this process. Foster awareness, self-assess and take action. So I'd like to start with the first step of fostering awareness, specifically what you call a gap awareness. I'd love it if you could explain what creates this gap in understanding and awareness and some of the ways we can build greater awareness about the differences between those we identify in our in-group as being us and those we see as being in the out-group or them. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it all comes to identity and the notion that every human has an, a cultural identity and that that cultural identity is made up of many, many factors. You know, the big ones tend to be your gender, uh, your, your generation, your age, your ethnicity, um, uh, what else, religion, what ethnic, uh, race. Um, I have what I call an identity cloud that mentions many, many potential topics, including things like education, socioeconomic class, uh, neurodiversity, you know, there's so many factors. And I, I tend to use a kind of fixed list, but I always say these are not fixed topics. But it starts with this notion that everybody, every single human has a cultural identity. And it's not only your country, it's not only um, your gender orientation. But any of these features of a person can become the basis of a, an us versus them gap. You know, we see it so obviously in things like race as it plays out or people speaking different languages. These tend to be uh, the visible differences, um, but there are a lot of invisible differences as well and in that come into play for somebody's cultural identity. So that that's the first step is just recognizing that when you talk about culture and you're talking about us versus them gaps, the topic of those gaps is endless and varies greatly depending on the person, the situation, the organization, etc. And there's an important point you make here in your book about understanding these different norms people in a them group might have. And that is that the goal is not for us to agree or follow them, but to understand them. And I love this point because it reflects one of the ideas I share in my keynotes and workshops on leadership and empathy, where I point out how the goal is not to agree, but to make the person feel seen and heard. And I think that's exactly what we're trying to do here in fostering awareness, where we don't rely on the limited information we have to presume to know what others are experiencing or feeling but we use our innate sense of curiosity to learn and understand. And as you write in your book, you cannot know another person's cultural identity by looking at them. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a big mistake so many people make. They take one look at somebody and they default to these superficial stereotypes. And of course, there's all kinds of, you know, unconscious bias that happens to humans. But if we 
pause and and recognize and stop ourselves from relying on these stereotypes, it can make a huge difference. I'd love to give you an example um, of one of these kinds of um, norms that we were just talking about and relating it uh, to something that just happened last week in Japan, which was the very violent, uh, unexpected assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. And this was a tragic event. You know, there's been a lot of news about how rare gun violence is, et cetera. Um, and so I've been advising clients uh, over the past week about what to do. You know, a lot of the U.S. colleagues of, uh, of the Japanese companies I work with were saying, you know, we don't know what to do or say, right? It gets back to that, you know, do we say anything? Should we not say anything? And I was giving various advice to people because I have spent a lot of time in Japan. I have I have gone to funerals. I have experienced losses through the relationships with very close Japanese friends. So I had some kind of information that I wanted to share. Um, you know, one little example of that is that in Japan, when there is a loss of someone's life, especially something huge, often um, there will be a period of mourning where there are no celebrations of any sort. There's a kind of very active um, effort not to show a celebration. I'm trying to think of a better word than celebration. Um, but, but that was just one of the pieces of information I was sharing with my American, uh, the colleagues, the American colleagues, um, because it's not something you have to agree with. You don't have to say, hey, we're never going to, we're not going to have the summer picnic that we planned. Um, but at least you know that, you know, going ahead with these plans for a summer picnic uh, might not be in alignment with what colleagues from Japan right now would feel is appropriate. And so if they know that piece of information, right, I shared that piece of information, I wasn't saying you have to follow this rule. I was saying, here's a piece of information you probably don't know because you just haven't logged the time uh, as I have in this particular culture. You're certainly capable of doing that, you know, if you too had logged the time. Um, and then use this information uh, to make informed choices about how you're going to move through this very real, very tragic situation that did occur in a country that is relevant to your company. That is such a powerful example that you're sharing because a lot of times you'll hear leaders speak of trying to do activities for their employees to improve employee morale and so forth and not getting the desired response and then feeling frustrated that, I'm trying to do stuff to help people and they don't seem to appreciate it. And I think this example highlights how it is really important for us to understand those different cultural identifiers people have that impacts the way they view and experience things. So that in a situation like this, where you're suggesting as an example, if you were to have a company picnic, why colleagues and employees from Japan would not take to it kindly or would not respond to it well we now have a better understanding. And so consequently, we're not going to be, as you write elsewhere in your book, we're not going to be judging people based on our cultural perspectives and values, but really understanding from their perspective. Again, it's not to say that one is more important than another or one's better than another, but just to understand where people are coming from in those moments. 
Absolutely. And and I, I'm going to ask you a question because I'm curious. You've dealt with a lot of people, but in my experience, when I've dealt with professionals and I've worked on four continents with thousands of professionals in various roles, when I present information and I ask people, you know, if they're curious, most people, I would say something like, you know, over 90% of the people are willing to make small adjustments. They are willing to learn. They want to know what these different norms are um, so that they can accommodate or slightly adjust for the benefit of everyone, for the benefit of the we. What, what's your experience with that? Oh, that's exactly my experience. Again, as I mentioned, I've done a lot of keynotes and workshops on leadership and empathy. And the feedback that I get is often amazing is how some people will come back going, oh, now I understand why that conversation didn't go as well as I had expected it to, right? Because people are realizing you're coming into those conversations with your own perceptions and your own reality and not taking into account or taking into consideration what's the other person's reality, what's their experiences, and what it is you're communicating and how, and consequently how that's going to inform and influence their response. So I think a lot of times people want that because in many times, leaders feel like there is, in that respect, a lack of information, a lack of clarity that would help them better understand what is it that I need to provide to my employees? What is it that I need to communicate to them to let them understand what it is I need from them and also that what I value and appreciate them doing? Mm-hmm. I agree. It actually gets to that second of the three steps, which is reflecting on yourself. So if leaders have a population of employees that are not the same as them, right? Because of generation or language or whatever it is, uh, I suggest looking at yourself and asking yourself these 10 self-assessment questions to give you a sense of how deeply you have engaged with this particular cultural group. Like I said about Japan, you know, anybody could learn the things I know about Japan. If, if you spent enough time uh, learning, you know, interacting, living there, it, it's, it's totally possible to learn these things. But so often leaders are making choices and decisions in relation to cultural groups that they have no business making decisions about because they have never or very rarely or only superficially engaged in face-to-face -face interactions. So this 10 question measurement tool I have, which I will say is free and available on my website, which is my name. Uh, it, I hope people will use it frequently. And these 10 questions give you a score from zero to 10. 10 is great. 10 means you have invested some time in face-to-face -face interactions with people in this target group that you decide, right? I'm not telling people you should do this. It's you decide what is a relevant cultural group. And then your score uh, gives you a sense of what you need to do next. In fact, any, they're yes or no questions. The, the no answers can become action points. I'm so glad you brought up this second step in your process of rebuilding, Laura, which you call self-assess. And what I really particularly appreciate is because, as we've discussed, some people might feel uncomfortable with this kind of ability to measure to address that us versus them mindset. As you pointed out, that because of 
a lot of the legalities and what we've also learned through our education experiences. You don't want to touch on certain topics because it makes people feel uncomfortable. And that's why I really appreciate how in this part of your book, you offer five important rules for how to conduct this assessment, which I think helps to make this process less daunting. So could you share, Laura, what these five rules are that should be observed when addressing this second step in the weed building process and using that assessment tool that you offer on your website? Okay, so the five tools are encouraging cultural, uh, cross-cultural conversations, uh, sharing iceberg stories, introducing the identity cloud exercise, um, practice the iceberg self-introduction, and creating awareness-building scenarios. Um, and I would say one of the most important parts of these five rules is the idea of the iceberg. Mm. And that goes back to one of our earlier comments, which is you accurately said, you can't just look at somebody and think you understand them. Um, the idea of the iceberg comes from um, Edward Hall's uh, idea, a theory of culture, that there are things on the surface that you see and hear, you know, in different cultures, like what somebody's wearing, speaking a different language, but that there's so much more information under the surface. And that without that information, you are going to make mistakes, you, you know, and, and that when you do the work to get that information, you are so much better prepared, and better suited to closing the gap that you're trying to close. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And, you know, in this part of your book, there is an excellent point that you bring up, which I think also helps again to lessen any perceptions of a burden in this process. And that is that we have to keep in our mind's eye that the goal we're aiming to achieve through we building here, where we expand our notion of us to include those we might currently view as them, it's not that we're now going to be friends, though that would be a nice bonus, but the real goal we're after here is to improve our understanding of one another. So as leaders, we're not only able to inspire the best in everyone under our care, but we're able to expand this feeling of belonging to everyone we lead, that we're reinforcing this notion of us being collectively bound to a common vision or goal that matters to all of us. And not just to those who make up the majority cultural group or what you referred to as the home team. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. And, and so when you look below the surface and um, listen, uh, you know, try to learn about another cultural group, you often discover uh, some similarities. Um, if I go back to the issue of this loss, this tragic loss in Japan and the idea of not having celebrations, you know, that's, that's not really something people might know automatically about Japan, um, that there is usually a period where people, for example, sending New Year cards, um, is kind of like sending Christmas cards in the United States, but it's sent their postcards, they're sent on New Year's Day. And whenever there is a loss in the family, you do not send out cards that year, and no one's supposed to send you a card either. So that's just a cultural norm that people practice. Um, so if you take the time to think about what's under the surface for somebody else, you might find that there, there are things that are similar. So even, you know, maybe in the United States, we don't have the same practices exactly, but 
there are, you know, every culture has patterns and practices um, that they follow after the passing, you know, somebody passes away. So those are the things, like you just said, this collective uh, belong, the sense of belonging that is, is so rewarding when you, you figure that out, especially if you thought on the surface that we're so different. Mm. And then you realize, oh, wow, we really have a lot in common and we're not that different. I mean, I think that's such the message with race in the United States. There has just been this chronic, you know, different differentiation of people. I, I really loved your guest, Dr. Tim Clark, talking about these junk theories of superiority. That, that really resonated with me, his phrase, junk theories of superiority. It has gone on for so long, these notions that because someone does not share my race, we must be so different. And the truth is that, sure, there are patterns of norms of behavior that are different in all, you know, many reasons from for different people. But we share so much in common. <laughs> and we often have the very same overall goals. And I mean, this is what people who study religion find, right? When you're, you're if you're a practicing Muslim or Christian, or you practice Judaism, you know, under the surface, there's a whole lot of shared commonality among these uh, very different religions. Yeah, absolutely. 100% agree with you on that. So let's talk then about the third and final step in the process of we building, Laura, where we're removing that us versus them mindset. So we're creating that true, inclusive and diverse work environment. And this step is to take action. And you define three categories of action leaders can take following that self-assessment step we just spoke about. And these three categories of action are safe actions, challenging actions, and radical actions. Could you describe what they are and maybe even share some examples, Laura, of what they look like in action? Absolutely. I love this last step because without action, we won't have transformation. And so... Safe actions are things you do in private. They're a great place to start. They are listening to a podcast, um, you know, uh, looking things up on Google, um, just starting to educate yourself. Um, and that's good, but you have to eventually get to challenging choices. And challenging choices are ones that involve face-to-face -face interactions going out to lunch, having a conversation, small talk conversation, having coffee with somebody, whatever it is. And then radical actions are where you deliberately put yourself in a situation where you are the minority. You are the only one surrounded by people who represent this other culture. So, and, and you know, you don't, I don't think people have to take radical actions. I think challenging actions are enough to initiate the change we need. But sometimes radical actions are the quickest, fast-track way to reach change. So if I give you uh, an example, um, gosh, there are so many examples someone could, could use. Um, let's say I was the manager. Let's say I'm a, a middle-aged manager and I'm a middle-aged white uh, female. Okay, let's pretend I'm a middle-aged white female. That's what I am. Um, and I am managing a group 
of people of color who are mostly in their 20s. Um, and let's agree that based on our cultural identities, there's stuff about this cultural group that I probably don't understand. So I might start off with safe choices by just reading, you know, reading the latest uh, articles about um, this generation, reading about, um, you know, just even Googling. Uh, if I had, say, Asian, a lot of Asian 20-year-olds uh, in New York City and trying to understand, well, what, what, what's resonating? What is meaningful? What, you know, what are the values? There's just information out there. Um, it may be accurate, it might not be. And this is why face-to-face -face interactions are so important. So you do some research, you find out some piece of information. Um, so let me make up uh, an idea. So if I, if I had, um, one of the things that I happen to know is that there's a group called BTS. Are you familiar with BTS, Tanvir? I'm not familiar with their music, but I am aware of their existence. Let's put it that way. So BTS, um, is popular among a lot of people, um, but there is this, uh, they are from South Korea. It's a group of seven young men and they have huge following among the generation that's you know much, much younger than I am. And uh, so I, and, and BTS also is, they're such great we builders. <laughs> they sing in, at least four different languages. They, of course, sing in Korean, in English, Japanese, Spanish, possibly Chinese, I'm not sure. But they're just this wonderful band who really have worldwide appeal. They have a wonderful message. Um, but if I learn that BTS, say, is a very popular music group among the generation of, uh, or among the group of employees that I am managing, well, how about I listen to some music? You know, it may not be for me, but I listen to some music. I learn about their concert schedule. I learn about the, the members or whatever. Uh, by the way, I love their music. I'm a huge fan. Um, but I, I learn. I just try to educate myself a little bit. And then through, I go to my challenging step um, and I, you know, I genuinely want to connect with these employees that I have and I say, hey, does anybody here like BTS or what do you, what can you tell me about BTS? I've been listening to their music and I'm curious to know more and maybe some of them are interested and they start sharing. So there are some small talk opportunities. Um, and then I, I try to utilize this piece of information in a genuine way, right? This, this is genuine. I'm genuinely interested in learning. It doesn't mean I have to love BTS. It means that I see it as meaningful to people that I work with and I recognize it's important to them. So I'm going to invest some time and energy in learning about it. Um, and then, you know, we try to connect over that particular topic. It's the exact same thing with sports, right? With, with people who like sports, this is just one that people default to because the home team in the United States is very sports oriented. Um, but whether it's sports or a music group or some kind of, uh, you know, hobby or social interest thing, these can be connecting points. So if you, the leader, have no understanding of your 
your team and their cultural norms, you're more likely to cause some unintentional damage. You know, you might say schedule inventory on the night that BTS is streaming the one night, 365 days a year, they're streaming their live concert from South Korea. Like, is that a good choice? Probably not. Could you adjust? Probably, if you knew about it, if you paid attention. (laughs) So these are ways that if we, as leaders, who are working with people who are different from ourselves, this is how we can use these action steps to literally narrow the gap between us and them, right? And leverage this knowledge and these relationships toward more productive outcomes. So, Laura, now that we've gone through the three steps of we building that helps to close the gap between us and them, I wanted to get your insights on an idea that was getting a lot of traction before the start of the pandemic. And it was this idea of hiring for culture fit, that organizations shouldn't worry so much about a prospective employee's past experience or skill set as they should in asking the question, is this person a good fit for our culture? And I have to admit, I've always felt that this was problematic because it seems like a surefire way to reinforce a groupthink mentality where we seek to hire people who think like us and probably also look like us. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with that study that showed how resumes of candidates with non-English sounding names like mine tended to be dismissed more often than those who had a more common sounding name like William or Leonard. While I get the desire to hire someone who will fit in well with your team, How do we make sure we're not simply falling into that us versus them mindset and limiting our exposure to people from diverse backgrounds who can help us widen our perceptions and understandings and consequently increase our ability to innovate and become more agile? Absolutely. Yeah, that hiring to for a culture fit in the words of the teenagers is very sus. My God, my kids would be so embarrassed right now. They were like, Mom, don't say that. (laughs) (laughs) It is, you know, it's suspect. It's not, it it is, it is a, it's code for let's not do something hard. Mm. And let's not expand the circle too widely. And let's prioritize our own comfort over the reality that, our company is working in an increasingly diverse, globally interconnected world. So if you have a homogeneous organization, you're actually setting yourself up for failure. You're not preparing yourself, your organization, and your employees to be successful interacting with people who are different from themselves. So hiring for a culture fit is is code for hiring a a homogeneous team. So anytime I see a homogeneous team or organization, I am looking at them and I'm thinking, why? Now, I, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and I grew up in a very, very homogeneous um, town in Columbus, Ohio. And I go back there now, and I look around, and I think, why? Why is this so white? And why, why did I never question this? You know, I grew up in a very colorblind era. It took me way too long to pay attention 
to issues of race um, in the way I should have been thinking much earlier. But whenever you, and, and I'll, I'll tell you, part of my thinking on this started in Japan. You know, Japan is 98% Japanese, you know, talk about homogeneous. And my career started working with mostly all Japanese staff who left Japan to work in Sao Paulo or London or Houston. And when I saw, what I saw was that the very talented, hardworking, mostly Japanese men were ill prepared to be successful because they had never interacted with um, somebody from a, a non-Japanese background. They didn't know how to communicate. They didn't know how to make good policies. And it was so obvious when I looked at Japan, and it was not obvious when I looked at the United States. It took me to see this very extreme other country to make me recognize in myself how homogeneity breeds an ill preparedness for the 21st century and the, the, the global realities that we all will face if you haven't faced them already. 100% agree. So another timely issue I wanted to get your insights on here, Laura, has to do with the ongoing discussion about creating hybrid work environments. Now, one concern that's been brought up about this is how this can actually create another disparity in terms of career growth and progression, where those who are not part of that home team will lose out on opportunities if they work in a remote setting instead of in an in-person work setting. Now, I don't think this should be used as an excuse to refuse employee flexibility to the way they work, but it would seem to be a valid concern. So how can leaders who want to reduce the us versus them gap in their workforce and be a we builder address this concern when it comes to offering some form of hybrid work environment? Yes, I believe that uh, work from home versus work for the office is a new us versus them gap that organizations have to worry about. Mm. I've written a couple pieces actually um, for uh, some blog posts on this. And the reality is, is, is recognizing it as a real us versus them dynamic is the first thing. And then getting input, making sure that you're deliberately being actively inclusive of people, you know, not just defaulting to who's in the office. So, um, you know, examples of ways to, you know, I, I often talk about creating we moments. So a we moment is, can be, um, you know, a luncheon for everybody, but a we moment is more than just a luncheon where you bring in pizza for the day. A we moment is bringing everybody in the office or, you know, whoever, you, if you have hybrid people creating an opportunity where they're meeting, you know, once a year, every, what, every six months, but you have to just take one more step to get it to be a we moment rather than just team building. The difference between a team building opportunity and we building is that you actively put people together who normally are not together. So if I am in company A and, you know, 50% of my people are working at home, 50% in the office and company A, I'm the president and I say, okay, let's get everybody together. Um, 
and for a weekend in New York City, we're going to really prioritize teamwork because we don't do this. We're doing it once a year. We're spending the money. And so I bring people together. But the being a we builder means I'm going to deliberately orchestrate activities where people sit, uh, whatever it is, so that anybody who works in the office is deliberately placed in situations where they are interacting with those who are working outside of the office. Because what happens if we don't deliberately take action is that people default to these comfortable, familiar choices, right? They're, they're drawn to people who they already know. Um, this happens with languages or, you know, various aspects of identity, people feel kind of existential crisis, uh, not crisis, existential comfort, I want to say. So people feel a, a kind of existential comfort when they're with somebody that they feel that they're similar with. And that's, I understand that, that's a real thing. Um, but we need to nudge people and encourage them and provide opportunities um, for them to move out of that and build up relationships for example, with people who are working hybrid. So if I were literally gonna plan some kind of function where my people who work from home all the time are gonna be in person, oh, wow, would I really put a lot of thought into even starting the starting point, you know, knowing people's names, um, having activities where they are um, interacting with one another, um, um, sitting next to each other, really expanding the idea of um, we all belong to company A. You know, I'd probably have t-shirts made up. I would, you know, do all, you know, really emphasize what we have in common. And I would not prioritize, this is really important, I would not prioritize people who are working in the office. I think that's the default, right? It's the same as prioritizing people who have higher positions or more skills. Sure, people have different salaries, they have different responsibilities, but we all know that there is a contribution made by somebody who who was just hired last week who might just be, you know, making copies of things. We need that person. So we don't need to overly prioritize one group or another, especially in those rebuilding opportunities. Well, Laura, I think you've given all of us a lot to think about, and I especially appreciate how you've made what many might see as a daunting challenge, as something that's feasible to accomplish, especially if we take on these measures with sincerity and a drive to affect real change as opposed to simply giving lip service to make ourselves feel good about what we're doing. So, arigato, Laura. Kai wao tano shinda. I know I didn't get it quite right at the beginning, but I still wanted to end off trying to speak a few words in Japanese with you to thank you. That's so great. So I, I would just like to just say one last thing, if you don't mind. Oh, absolutely. And that is, it is my mission to inspire a rebuilding revolution where people take action to close us versus them gaps, to create a safer, more welcoming and productive world. But I cannot do this alone. I need your help, Tanvir. I need your listeners' help. We can do this together. Well, you certainly have it, Laura. And I again want to thank you for a thoughtful conversation on this important subject. Thank you so much. Domo arigatou gozaimashita. 
Well, I hope you found this conversation as insightful as I have, and that it's also helped you appreciate some steps you can take today to overcome that tendency we all have to view people in terms of us versus them. Now, if you'd like to learn more about Laura's work, her book, and that free online assessment she spoke about, check out the show notes for this episode on our podcast page at tavernaseer.com slash LBC. Now, if you've been enjoying my podcast, I'd like to ask you if you could take a moment to rate and review my podcast on your favorite streaming platform. And while you're at it, why not share this podcast with your colleagues and employees? Easiest way to do this is to simply share a link to our podcast page at tavernaseer.com slash LBC, where they'll find links to listen to our show on all the major streaming platforms. I'm Tavernaseer, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.